Gen X Playback, episode number 16. And welcome back to another exciting episode of Gen X Playback. It's a show where we talk about our favorite times of the years, the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And you're wondering, gee, Scott, why are you playing uh, the Bee Gees jive talking? I, I was actually wondering that. <laughs> that caught me off guard. Well, I thought we'd, we'd do a little uh, shout out. Remember, we try and recognize those, uh, some of our loyal listeners not only around the United States, but also around the world. And I wanted to give a special shout out to really our, I would say our first international group of listeners that have been with us since the beginning. And what better way to give them a shout out than to recognize the, the boyhood home of Barry, Robin, Morris, and Andy Gibb, also known as the Bee Gees, and that would be Queensland, Australia. Huh. So... To Queensland, Australia, thank you very much. You've been with us pretty much since the beginning. That's so awesome. I wanted to give you a little bit of a shout out. There, yeah, so. no, I, I did, you know, this little little um, homage, uh, courtesy of my brother, t- uh, was unknown notes to me. So great. I mean, that's that's incredible. See, I don't really look at the numbers that much. Scott always goes in and checks our stats and usually gives me a little update and that I did not know that. So cool. Yeah. Um, and so what better way to, and I was trying to, you know, give, like you said, some kind of an homage to, to, uh, you know, because for American fans of music, there's a lot of great Australian groups out there. A lot of solo artists, great singers, great acts, bands, uh, you know, ACDC comes to mind, but it, it, probably worth an episode somewhere down the road where we kind of cover our favorite Australian yep. acts. But let's, let's make a note to do that. I, yeah. I, I like that. Cause you know, growing up there, there were a lot of acts that came out of Australia that, um, you know, as you mentioned, ACDC is probably, you know, for us as kids was the first that we probably were aware of, but you know, there, you know, there, we can get, go down that road. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite singers, you know, didn't really have an Australian accent when we, Met him for the first time on MTV or whatever on the radio, but Rick Springfield sure. is originally from Australia as well. So yeah, I thought we'd uh, do something a little different this time around. So Queensland, Australia, thank you very much for, for listening to uh, to our episodes here at Gen X Playback. We appreciate it. So now in this episode tonight, um, we are not going to be doing music from the disco era. No. No, not at all. So we don't want to, hopefully you're not tuned out already. <laughs> if, you're, if you came back, no, this is, uh, this is going to be something quite different. Um, we already covered disco. Sure. This is something that you wanted to talk about this particular week. So I'll, I'll let you kind of give a little more detail. Well, if you listen to last episode, I, I kind of introed this and, you know, we talked, uh, we're going to talk about kind of the era that was where the bands that ruled the Sunset Strip in, in you know, Los Angeles outside of Hollywood. And the, what has come to be known as hair metal, which as Scott and I say repeatedly to anybody that will bring it up to us, there was no such term back in the day as hair metal. No, not at all. And, and it really, MTV had a lot to do with, I guess, what, what ended up becoming the hair metal look. Uh, you know, a lot of 
rock and roll bands or even bands that played a harder version of rock music. Uh, they were big in stadiums, but up close, yeah, I mean, they weren't really, I would say, camera friendly. Some were. Obviously, uh, Van Halen comes to mind as somebody that kind of predated the MTV era. But once you started to hit 1984, 1985, there was kind of a formula being developed and, and record companies are notorious for doing this where they see something that's successful and they say, you're going to be the next so-and-so and then you're going to be the next so-and-so. And, -so, and it, it just kind of becomes this system. And I think that's what, you know, glam metal or hair metal ended up becoming was kind of the system that was created more by the record companies. And, uh, you know, it dominated for, for quite a number of years. It did. And back in the day, it was just called metal. So it was kind of a broad term. The, the we didn't have necessarily the categories like we do now. That you know the the subgenres. It just was kind of hard rock, metal music. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. So the way what we're calling this episode is in parentheses. Don't call it uh, or don't call them parentheses hair bands. So we're going to kind of talk about bands, not not solo artists. You know, there's obviously some solo artists that would have been in that era that would have been kind of big. Uh, you know, the Ozzy Osbourne uh, type of a person, you know, maybe a Ronnie James Dio kind of comes to mind. But we're not going to talk about them. It, you know, I, and I'd mentioned if, if my ladies that rocked, Lita Ford was one of them. So Lita's not on my list, not because she doesn't fit in the genre. She totally does. But this is reserved for the bands. And so with that, I'm going to turn over Scott. And we, we came up with lists. I know sometimes Scott rebels against that he doesn't always do lists but I, I wanted you to do an actual list and kind of rank these artists i did so I, I ended up doing a top 10 i did want to give some honorable mentions i have five honorable mentions okay i'm not going to play the songs or or music from those particular bands but i i wanted to kind of give mention to them because when i had to break break down my my favorite uh I guess you would call them glam metal bands or hair bands of all time. I had to put down some type of a criteria. And one of those criteria for me was, I think I had to be a fan of more than just one single album. Okay. All right. So that's why, you know, there's, th there's three in particular in, uh, in my honorable mention that if you took just those particular one album, they are amongst my favorites when they particularly when they came out. But there's really nothing else for me that I was a fan of. So that's why I kind of had to drop them off by the wayside. Well, and, you know, interestingly, and, you know, as we say time and time again, Scott and I do not discuss this. That's kind of what I used to pick my list. So I will get into the same. I will have some honorable mentions that I will play songs for mm -hmm. because, you know, these, these may have been bands that might have had that one album that I loved and just went over and over again and, and listened to. But I, to get actually in my top, well, I have a 12, but in my, in my, okay. in my top 12 list, it needs to be an artist that had a little more staying power. Okay. So with that, yeah, I'll let you get into your list. All right. So, I mean, my first honorable mention, I'll, I'll probably go back the furthest and that would be Judas Priest. Now Judas Priest had a lot of successful albums. Don't, you know, they were a, a major uh, group when I was just starting to get into music and I guess I need to sort of buffer that and clarify when, when I was young, I wasn't really into heavy rock or hard rock. Uh, it wasn't until I got to be about maybe 11 
you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, that I started to recognize, you know, the, the more of a thrash type sound. So Judas Priest was one of the first groups that I even had heard of outside of maybe an ACDC, but I never, I didn't put ACDC in this category, which is why ACDC doesn't make my list. Yeah. So again, you know, it just depends on how you want to categorize it. But ACDC, I didn't put in as a, you know, as a hair metal type band, but right. Judas Priest was for me, heavy metal. And, um, uh, I probably you've got another thing coming was the first song that I remember that they did. I did. You went and saw them in concert. Didn't I did. You? I did. Actually, this was the, the very first rock concert I ever went to one and me. And, you know, we've mentioned his name a few times here. My buddy, Greg Lapp, who also was really into music at the time. So me and Greg and, uh, Lori's friend was Dory, Dory Landis. They, w- the four of us went to this concert and I was scared out of my mind going to a Judas Priest concert as, as this, uh, you know, kind of uh, shy, um, sheltered young lad. Uh, but it was very memorable. Uh, that would have been the Defenders of the Faith tour that they were on. Now, and then you were talking about You Got Another Thing Coming. That was the previous uh, album, Screaming for Vengeance. This was definitely... I think the at the height of Judas Priest, and mm-hmm. it's kind of when Judas Priest coming out of the seventies went from being darker, harder, you know, m- more of a Black Sabbath type of sound, um, and became kind of poppier. Not in, in in no way were they a pop band, but they definitely were moving to becoming a little more commercial, a little more friendly for the MTV world. Yeah, and I think a lot of the stuff that they had before, and, and that's why so many of those. English heavy hard rock or heavy metal bands from the late seventies. It took them a while to really, I guess Iron Maiden, somebody that comes to mind that it took them a while to kind of hit that eighties wave that so many seventies bands were kind of getting onto. And so they had to come, they sort of had to reinvent their sound just a little. There was some tweaking done there. Right. And uh, because I think they realized or either that or they were being told that you're going to have to make some type of musical concession. Otherwise you're, you're going to fall by the wayside. And it's natural to be kind of influenced uh, with what's happening at the time. I mean, that every era has kind of a sound to it. And this is the, um, from 1980, um, for, for me. So it, it was like the British steel album came out in 1980. That's, that was the first breakthrough basically in America. Mm-hmm. Um, Breaking the Law is kind of probably the big song that comes off of that album. And then, of course, they said Screaming for Vengeance and then Defenders of the Faith. So they had this this run where they were pretty popular. Yeah. And at the Spectrum, it, it was packed. It, it it was definitely a, uh, a, a, a ticket that, you know, w- was a big event, you know, going in at the time. You know, sometimes I've been to some concerts where... You know the the arena is only half filled, but this this was uh, this was a popular ticket. Yeah, so that was my first honorable mention. The second honorable mention is uh, is Quiet Riot and their album Metal Health. Okay, that was the first heavy metal cassette tape that I ever owned, and I remember wanting to get it very. I remember when it came in the mail, and. For anybody that is a Gen Xer, you're probably, most of you, if you lived in the United States, were probably a member of the Columbia House Record Club. How many songs for a penny did you get? 11. Yeah. You got 11 tapes for for a penny. But it was pretty cool because I I was able to get a lot of, you know, a lot of newer music that way. But uh, Quiet Riot's cassette tape was was one that I 
saw it out on the list because you had you know a big giant list of songs that, or albums that you could choose that was the one i was probably looking forward to the most when it came in when i got that cassette tape uh you know come on feel the noise had already come out and then uh, mental health you know bang your head mental health was basically on mtv at that point so this was where they were where they became the number one first heavy metal band to go number one on the u.s charts as far as an album goes and so they were at the this was at their peak this was their pinnacle and i this was a cassette tape that i absolutely had to have and then i remember being so excited for their third well it ended up being their third album to come out uh and being so disappointed and quiet riot very quickly disappeared in uh in my uh list of favorite uh musical groups at that particular point but mental health i, I don't want i want to give it the credit that it that it is owed from me as a kid because I love this album so much when it came out. It's the first metal album to go to number one. Yes. It it was pretty monumental. So this this came out when I was in junior high school. And I remember really being in, into it. So just like Scott, uh, you know, this was on my list of of uh, albums and bands that, that kind of missed out on my, my top 12, kind of for the same reason. As much as I was into this when it came out in 1983... It just, I I didn't even really like the follow-up that much. You know, I didn't even make it to number three. I, you know, when, when the second one came out, Condition Critical, I think it was, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was really into. But I think it's so important to remember Quiet Riot just for the influence that they had. Because for a moment, you know, you had Kevin DeBro, the lead singer, uh, you know, you know, Carlos Cavazzo was the guitar player, but, you know, Randy Rhodes, the famous guitar player mm -hmm. with Ozzy, he was... He was in Quiet Riot beforehand. Um, you know, Rudy Sarzo, who's the bass player, he goes on to a, a long, long career as kind of a sideman with a lot of different players. Yeah, he's still playing to, to this day. He, he is somebody that if you are in this genre, you're still probably going to go out and, and find Rudy Sarzo. And then uh, Franco Benelli, who was the drummer, did you ever see the, the, the documentary that he put out uh, a few years ago? I mean, but not, Frankie has passed away, mm -hmm. but he, he put out a really interesting documentary where he kind of chronicles the band and what it was like for him when, when Kevin, who was basically his partner in the band, mm -hmm. when he dies from, uh, he had like a, it wasn't a drug overdose, but I think, like, I don't know if he had a heart attack or, or something along those lines. Right, he did. He had some type of uh, cardiac arrest. Right, right. And... But it was it was it's interesting because you know these guys were were really good musicians. The, this was not some cheesy band that was just thrown together, and for all of them, it was kind of a side project. They they all had other main gigs, but they said that this was the band that was the best musically. So they kind of did it as a little side thing, and it kind of led to this uh, this album deal that they had, and kind of out of nowhere, uh, they had this big success. Well. I watched a, uh, a thing on the Sunset Strip back in the early 80s. And when, when the heavy metal scene sort of took off based on the music from the Sunset Strip, and you're going to see a lot of influence on my list of uh, that L.A., you know, Whiskey-A-Go-Go -Go type, those bands that were big out west. Uh, it started with Van Halen. Mm -hmm. They were really kind of the, the, the guys who broke the mold and, and burst through to the national scene. They were the first ones that everybody... Uh, tried to emulate after that and then quiet riot really was i guess in the la uh bar scene at that time 
there were three main bands that were sort of competing against each other, and that was Motley Crue, it was Quiet Riot, and it was Rat. Those, those three, they were kind of the kings of the hill after Van Halen moved on. And Although Quiet Riot, as you said, was the first heavy metal album to go number one on the charts. And then very quickly, uh, you know, Motley Crue came almost immediately after and rat came on. I mean, they were like one, two, three. And to kind of give you, um, you know, a perspective on how popular this was, there there may exist somewhere, a cassette recording uh, from the basement of Doug Wirt's house where me and Doug and Greg went down and we recorded a version of uh, metal health. Okay. (laughs) I, uh, I, I'm sure it'd be absolutely hilarious to listen to a day. You're not going to hear it folks. Cause I haven't heard it since <laughs> the, uh, it was probably the fall of 1983 when we were down there. Uh, Doug was banging away on the drums. Okay. Greg was trying to learn to play guitar okay. and I was uh, doing the lead, lead uh, vocals. Okay. All right. So I don't think, I don't even my voice changed at that point. <laughs> so it, it would be hilarious to hear it today, but that just to show you how popular it was. We go to the basement. What's a song that I knew from memory. Right. You know, there's no internet. We can't look up the lyrics. This is just something that I'd listen to so often when we're saying, hey, let's cut a demo. What can we come up with? I'm like, oh, well, we, we all knew mental health. Sure. And that's what we tried. Yeah. So that was, that was my uh, second honorable mention. And my third honorable mention, I'm going to go to uh, 1987. And although this band has released a lot of music, uh, it was the one particular album, which is the uh, self-titled White Snake in 1987 with David Coverdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love this. I really love this album. For me, it was one of those right, right moment, right album for the right moment kind of things for me as far as hitting that nerve that I was looking for musically. And I was, I was at that point, I was into a lot of, a lot of you know, hard rock, heavy metal type music. And when uh, Still the Night, when it first came out on MTV, I saw that. I was like, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. you know, ran out, got the cassette tape. And that was in my uh, heavy workout rotation where I would just sit there. I think that album, more than any other album I played while working out, annoyed our father the most. Um, probably because it was so loud. And it was, I mean, it was really over the top. Um, but yet, uh, it was a good album through and through. I, I thought I thought for uh, Coverdale, because he was notorious for changing lineups so many times oh, with yeah. White Snake, that to me this was his the best sounding White Snake. Uh, because after that, I didn't particularly care because he went in a di- different direction musically, uh, just a little bit. But this was, or maybe my taste changed. I don't know, but this was the one album that I liked from White Snake, and and this was. Uh, by far, they're most successful. Oh, most definitely. This this was something where you know White Snake was bigger in Europe than what they were in the U.S. So the the previous album, um, you know, had like slip at the tongue or not or, or um, uh, slide it in would have been like the and I like that song. I like yeah. that song so a lot. We were aware of White Snake. We it wasn't. I mean, we would listen to rock radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was you know coming WTPA coming out of Harrisburg, or whether it was WYSP you know coming out of Philadelphia, Starview ninety two out of York, we would hear White Snake, mm-hmm. but 
they were not known to anyone that did not listen to rock radio. And as you said, he, David Coverdale, David Coverdale is Whitesnake. And, yeah. you know, it, so, you know, it, it was interesting because I had said to you at the la- end of last episode, you know, you could throw out a band from the 70s like Deep Purple. Well, mm-hmm. David Coverdale was the lead singer of Deep Purple for a while. I think it's for four years. And, and so he, he came out of that experience and then kind of goes solo, but, you know, kind of forms this band. And what he did was uh, there's a, a really, he signed with Geffen Records. And there's a really famous, um, I, I think he's, I guess he's an A&R guy, uh, John Kalodner. Okay. And John Kalodner is kind of a guru for a lot of these bands. And he he uh, he knows what the tastes are going to be. And he basically went to Coverdale and he said, you know, you are a star. And what the band you have around, the, the members you have around you aren't that good. They don't, they don't suit you. I think he kind of had a lot of bluesy type players. There was this... His original guitarist was a guy named Bernie Marsden, who's a good guitar player, mm-hmm. but definitely not what becomes that flashy, as you talked about Van Halen. Well, yeah. It's not that Eddie Van Halen flashy up and down the neck. It's kind of that slow, bluesy style. And I think even uh, Marsden said later on, years later, that I just wasn't the performer that David was looking for. Have you, have you seen Bernie Marsden? He's kind of a little chubby. Yeah, he's he definitely is somebody who's who's a good player, and and I sometimes I hate when I hear that the record companies want uh, bands to drop artists because I think it it stains these artists, and oftentimes as we're moving out of the seventies and going into the eighties, and MTV's becoming a thing, they got dropped because they didn't look good. Right. It's not that they weren't good players. And and I think for Barty Morrison, it's a shame because you know I've actually watched some videos where he plays. He's a really good player. Yeah, and some of the some of the bands coming out of the seventies that were so big, and uh, even on on the that received radio airplay, not just necessarily heavy metal, but because of MTV, they kind of got pushed aside because they didn't have that quote unquote look that they were looking for. Right, right, and so and here's an example where with this White Snake album. So, uh, you know, we go out and we have a whole new group of players play with Deva Coverdale. And he goes on to get this guitar player, John Sykes. John Sykes is, is in Thin Lizzy beforehand, and he looks like he would fit the mold. You know, good-looking guy, uh, you know, excellent player, great singer. He, uh, you know, he's got the long, flowing blonde hair. He just, he, he fits the part. He makes this album, writes all the songs with Coverdale. So he co-wrote, right? He wrote everything, and he never appears in the video. He, That's right, yeah. Because covered, he and Coverdale had a fallout yeah. before it got released. So you see Vivian Campbell uh, as the guitar player, who's now in Def Leppard, and he was in Dio mm-hmm. before this. And you see uh, Adrian Vandenberg, uh, who I think Vandenberg plays a solo on Here I Go Again. But for the most part, other than that, it's all John Sykes, yet this camera-ready person who's brought in, and I think Claudner was the guy who really pushed Sykes on Coverdale. Mm-hmm. They write this great material, and then, you know, they kind of have this falling out. Yeah, and it's a shame because you mentioned the name John Sykes, who was a big part of this album and then gone. And I think that that may have, had he stayed with Whitesnake the band, who knows what would have happened afterwards. Maybe I would have, maybe I would have enjoyed the the music that they released afterwards. I actually like the the follow up album, Slip of the Tongue. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, there's some there's some good stuff on there because he uh, brings in Steve Vai, right? From you know, the, uh, David Lee Ross band comes on and and plays on that, and I I like that album as well. I had that album, but okay. I you know I I'll save some of the other things just because White Snake does make my list. Okay, so we we can get into it then. Okay, um, honorable mention number four for me, and I mentioned this in a previous episode of my favorite albums of the 1980s, and that is uh, White Lion. And their album Pride that came out in uh, late '87. Um, again, for for me, it didn't make my criteria because as much as I loved this album, uh, the other stuff just didn't stand up for me. And with uh, again, this this a lot of it has to do with uh, Vito Brada, who is their lead guitarist, and is just I just heard um, on uh, Sirius XM they played When the Children Cry. And it's not so much the song as it is the solo that I just sit there and I just I can I can listen to his guitar playing over and over again. I don't get tired of it, and that's to me that's why this album has remained, uh, you know, so much so embedded in my heart as far as what I how highly I think of it is because of uh, you know I'm listening to greatness. I it, every time I, I hear him hear one of the songs that's on the album particularly weight the, the guitar solo mm-hmm. and weight i just sit there and think, i'm man I'm, I'm listening to i'm listening to somebody who is great at their craft Vito brada may have been the closest to eddie van halen of of any other guitar player you know you you can make a case for like a nuno Betancourt. um you know there there's so many people that tried to be like eddie van halen and Vito he he sounds similar to him but different enough where you can tell that it's him playing. Mm. And I think that's the sign of any really good, true, great, or I should say great musician, is when they have a recognizable sound. And where, you know, I, I to me, Eddie's still the best player ever. But Vito was different enough where, and what I liked about Vito was, yes, he kind of had the, uh, like the pitch harmonics and the, you know, I, l- I like that squeal that, that he gets out of the guitar. But he also was very smooth, and it was almost like a classical guitar approach. It wasn't very harsh. Where Eddie is, he digs in, and he hits the strings hard. And I think, you I mean, it almost sounds like Vita was kind of delicate. Especially when he's playing the acoustic. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when I think about the When the Children Cry, and he's playing the acoustic part of the song, and I know why Mike Tramp said that, he wanted to try and keep white line going even after Vito left the band, but nobody wanted to play the songs because the solos were too hard. Sure. And they, and he said, I, he goes, you know, I didn't want to disrespect anybody and we didn't want to change the material of the songs that had been previously done because Vito had so much to do with the arrangements and did a lot of the songwriting and did a lot of the composing and nobody wanted to touch anything that he did because it was so difficult to do. One of the foundational uh, elements of not just this style of music, the you know the, the metal, the hard rock, but I think just kind of rock music in general is w- the it's foundational to have that lead singer and lead guitarist that can play off each other. And when you have that chemistry, it really can catapult you to another level. You know, we talked about it with Pat Benatar and Neil Girardo. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked about, obviously, you know, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. You get to Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. There's just something where you need both of them there. And when it works, it's great. The only problem is, is with one person doesn't want to be a part of it, it falls apart. Okay. 
So that was my uh, fourth honorable mention, which is White Lion and based on their album Pride that came out in late 1987. My fifth honorable mention, I'm not going to any specific album because to me that's why it didn't make my top list, is I liked the band for a lot of the singles that they had come out. But when I actually went back and listened to, when I went back and listened to their entire album, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fluff in it. And, yeah. and that's Winger. Uh, Kip Winger and Winger is a great band. So it's, you have, you have Kip I have, uh, I, on bass and lead singer. Mm-hmm. You have Red Beach, uh, who is one of the, the greatest guitar players out of the eighties. Another Pennsylvania guy is out of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. He is currently the lead guitar in the current incarnation of White Snake. Okay. So he's been with David Coverdale. 15 20 years mm-hmm. and and he splits double duty between the two bands you have uh, rod morgenstein the drummer who is highly regarded out there as you know kind of this rock fusion progressive drummer then he gets in, into the uh, to the rock uh, element they uh, had had a uh, their piano player or their keyboardist mm-hmm. paul taylor right who also would play guitar as well uh, uh, a really good songwriter. You know, he actually is somebody that tours a lot now. I mean, he has been like Tom Kiefer's traveling keyboardist for many years. You know, he played with Cinderella kind of off to the side for a while. And he, uh, has, he was Alice Cooper's keyboardist for many years. So here you have all these studio musicians, yeah, these hired guns yeah. in a lot of ways. And, you know, I heard that kind of during their heyday in the, in the mid eighties and late eighties, early nineties, that Kip and Reb, in particular, they were kind of the top, some of the top session musicians out there. Where uh, their, their producer was Bo Hill, uh, who who also he was kind of famous for producing Rat, and he uh, you know he he did um, Warrant, and he mm-hmm. you know he did like a Kicks album, so he d- did a lot of people. And yeah, I think he did uh, Dirty Rotten. Yeah, he did, he did everything Warren. for Warren. Yeah. And then if you remember Fiona, mm-hmm. so, I mean, he was kind of the person behind that. And he also was hired for a lot of other things. You know, Reb and Kip were playing on a lot of other artists' albums. Yeah, it's it's a shame that Kip Winger uh, musically didn't get a lot of notoriety from people that didn't know the behind-the-scenes, uh, you know, music players or session players. Because before Kip even got his own band, I mean, he made his living as a bassist. I think he was well, he was with Ozzy for for a period. Uh, of time. He started with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, okay. Yeah. But before he even got his, the, the before these guys even got an opportunity to put a band together, you know, he he paid a lot of dues as a musician, and I guess that's the 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 good thing, the, the upside and the downside of being so big on MTV is that he got pushed to the forefront as a pretty boy. Yeah. And and unfortunately for Kip, uh, when you listen to, like you just listen to a song as in, you know, simple as, as 17, uh, those guys are are tight. It's a tight band. Uh, my favorite song from, from Winger is um, Can't Get Enough. And if you listen to the, the rhythm and time throughout that song and how many times they change pace, I'm thinking to myself, that's got to be hard to play. I mean, you got to be really good to be able to to go at you know fast and slow, then fast, and then you're playing on the offbeat, and then you're playing on the on the downbeat, and it's just like that's a. I mean, I can imagine that being a, a, such a hard song to play as a musician, 
and those and those guys, like I said, they're they're they were a super tight band. And Kip singing on top of that, right? So you know, he there's those off tunes, you know, there's those off beats as you mentioned, where that's fine. I mean, it's one thing; it's hard enough to be this musician to play it, and then to play it, and then have to sing uh, on over on top of that. Pretty amazing. But I agree with you, where because I went back and I listened to their first album. Mm-hmm. The the first four or five songs are just really good, and then it takes a turn. Yeah, it's it's like it falls off a cliff. I had to stop listening. It, 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 it was so bad. I just couldn't listen anymore. It, it was almost like they had their, you know, you have like your loaded weapon, and then you shot your bullets, and it's like, oh, man, we got to come up with five more songs. Yeah, it's it, they should have just had an EP. I mean, it you know, kind of like how when David Lee Roth did uh, his original Crazy, Crazy from the Heat, where it's just a short EP, and you know why put a whole lot of filler on there when you can have something that's good? A uh, little side note: I I did see them in concert. Uh, I didn't go to see them specifically, but they opened for the Scorpions. Okay, at, on that tour, and I think the, I mean I know that the Scorpions that was their first tour. Okay, so when I saw them, which would have been fall of 1988, and they were the opening act. I, they probably had only been on the road a few weeks, and they uh, they were really good. But as you mentioned, with kind of being like kept being a, a good looking guy, it's kind of cheesy too. Because I remember he was like he had this banner with the crowd trying to talk to the women. Okay, and I remember thinking, uh, yeah, this guy, he's it's this isn't going well. Uh, you know, hey, like go back and listen to our early episodes. They're not that good. So I don't want to criticize him too much sure. for a few weeks out on the road as a lead singer for the first time. But at the time, I remember thinking, yeah, you, you guys are pretty good as a band, but uh, I don't care for the uh, for the conversation. Well, as, you know, as Sean and I have mentioned many, many times, we don't we don't compare notes. We don't compare lists before we before we go on. And uh, so I just I thought with what he said ties in so well to my uh, my top 10 list so uh i figured why don't we just go ahead and roll into my number 10 song for uh for favorite hair bands there we go so what better way to go into my number 10 with the other band that sean saw in concert the night he saw winger yes it is my number 10 heavy metal band of all time and that would be the scorpions from west germany none other than lead singer klaus mine Mina. and this is off their major album love at first sting mm-hmm. love the scorpions when they when they uh, came out they were one of the early hard rock bands to kind of become a darling of mtv early mtv so I think of their song, There's No One Like You, which is such a memorable music video. Mm-hmm. That was from their uh, Blackout album. I didn't really know much else from the Blackout album, but I was ready for Love at First Thing when it came out. And this was this was great. And then they came out with a live album after World, that. Worldwide Live. Called Worldwide Live, which is really one of my favorite tapes cassette tapes of the mid 80s oh i remember hearing you play this a lot yeah i was i was all over and that just shows the i think sean and i have similar uh criteria for what makes something our our favorite or or would make the list is i could roll that worldwide live tape from beginning to end and never stop so i 
went back and I listened to Worldwide Live again, and it was amazing because I was doing other things while I had the uh, the headphones on, and I predicted each song that came up. I haven't listened to this thing in 20 plus years from start to finish. And it was amazing how when you come from the album era that you you remember, you anticipate the mm-hmm. next song coming up because your brain is like ready for it to roll into that next song. That's right. Even, yeah. even down to some of the conversations he was having with the crowd when he was talking about the microphones in the air. Uh-huh. It's, like I was, it's like I was saying it along with him right, right when he was ready to say it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Scorpions had a, one of the more successful European bands of the 1980s. And, uh, you know, M- MTV, there were too many bands, especially harder rock bands that were able to cross over into United States on MTV there were there were numerous it was probably strong from uh, like English heavy metal in the late 70s and then there's I would say there's probably a little bit of a lull I mean one of the heaviest rockers in the 80s you, you could argue, you arguably say was Billy Idol and so there were uh, for a European band to come over you had the Scorpions and then you had bands like Europe um, so the Scorpions they they had a little bit more teeth to their music, and that's probably why I was drawn to to their songs more so. I, Europe, when Europe came out, it was fine, um, but the Scorpions was something. And you just go from one jam to the next. And I think I remember you saying when you saw them out in Kansas, when they when they stopped over, you said they did a very professional show. They just they they you know it was probably just a stopover date for yeah. them that they they went out there and they they went out there and, and gave a great show. So. We're from the era where you didn't have uh, backing tracks, right? So, you know, there's a big controversy today right now that, you know, bands play along to tracks. And is it legitimate or not? Well, back then they didn't have the tracks. Mm -hmm. So you would see the warts. And there's many a concert I went to where I was not impressed. You know, I came away saying those guys just didn't have it. You know, whether they just weren't good musicians or... Maybe they were, you know, uh, indulging too much on the road and just had a bad night, which is possible. But as Scott said, I, I saw them at, in Wichita, Wichita, Kansas. It has to be a layover, right? I mean, so you're going from maybe Denver to Chicago, and and we would see them in the middle of the week. So we, when being out there in Kansas, Wichita was kind of a major stop, and the re- I think the reason was you would have these bands traveling through. You would do your big concert, as I said, Chicago, you know, maybe Denver. You would do those on a weekend. Mm-hmm. So as you're traveling, you're going to pass right through Wichita. And guess what? You're going to have a whole bunch of crazy Midwesterners pack out your arena, which is what they did. And a little side note with that, when I saw them, they filmed one of their videos. Now, this was the Savage Amusement Tour. So this is 1988. And they filmed a song that, uh, video for a song called when passion rules the game not a super popular song right. a lot of people don't remember it i did go back and look at the video okay i think i think folks if you're listening if you pause it at the 319 mark i think i see myself <laughs> okay it it's not there for very long and the reason i think it's me was because I went to the concert and i remember and you, you may remember i had this hat i had a a white adidas uh, almost like a painter's cap kind of, that I would wear all the time. I wore it to the concert. Okay. 
I'm pretty sure that's me with, with a white hat on at the one little scene. And I think my, uh, my buddy Dan Detweiler standing next to me. Okay. So I, I, me wearing a jean jacket, painter's hat, and a, and a, a mustache that kind of looks like Rudolph Shanker of the Scorpions. Okay. Or John Oates. Or John right? Oates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. That was number 10, which was the Scorpions and uh, from their Love at First Thing album that was Big City Nights. My number nine band of all time. Received a lot of MTV airplay back when they first came out. They were sort of the darlings of the early MTV era. Had a couple of couple of hit albums, and I think what stood out to me in the very beginning, this is one of the first times I actually saw a drummer sing. And Kelly Key was the uh, drummer for Night Ranger, and this is my number nine band. Uh, Jack Blades was also a guy who sang on most of the songs. But... I thought this was pretty cool. You know, they stood out to me. They, One of the first videos that I remember was a, a song called Sing Me Away. Okay. And that was off their uh, it was off their Dawn Patrol album. That was mm-hmm. in the early 80s. So you can still rock in America, which is this song here. This was this was the, the biggest album for them. This was Midnight Madness. Mm-hmm. It came out around 1984. This had Sister Christian on it. Um, when You Close Your Eyes. A lot of hit songs. They were... They were Probably one of the earliest, I guess you could call them, hard rock or heavy metal bands that were ready for MTV. And I think MTV enhanced a lot of their popularity. These guys were good musicians, and uh, but this was a formula, a music formula that was a little different than some of the other bands that are on my list. Uh, but they, these guys were definitely uh, very popular for the MTV age in the early 80s. Well, Night Ranger is uh, a band that, that was... They were on my almost list. I mean, they, I, I have them here as a, you know, to mention band. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You, you didn't name probably the, my, my favorite member of the band, which would be Brad Gillis, who was the guitar player. And, you know, Brad Gillis had a lot of credibility back in the day. Right. And we're actually going to hear him here pretty soon. He's getting ready to uh, get into his guitar solo. But these, these guys were, they had actually, the thing that was also very cool about Night Ranger was they had the the guitars that would play simultaneously. Yeah, the, the two lead guitars. Sure. Which kind of gave it a layered sound, which I thought was very cool. Now, these two guys are going to get ready to start going back and forth here, which is one of my favorite parts of the song. Uh, I know Judas Priest was also one of the early bands that had the uh, the dual lead guitars. But I thought this was, this was a cool element. And this made them stand out in the early uh, hard rock bands of their time because think about it MTV one lead guitarist Motley Crue one lead guitarist and whereas these guys had, had two lead guitarists that could go at the same time so uh, pretty neat I, I thought this this is what made them stand out well you know as you know we talked about Brad Gillis Jeff Watson was the other guitar players the uh, guitar player and I, I agree with you that's kind of what made them stand out is that they did take that kind of co-lead guitar aspect, but they were very melodic. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, we're, we're talking about what becomes later known as as hairband music, and that kind of is what I think when people look back at that era, at what they're thinking of. So it's it's you know usually for the most part very good musicians. It, it, it's music that sometimes gets disparaged, but ironically, 
it probably had some of the better, you know, quote unquote, actual players uh, in that genre. And they were very catching. You know, you know, you rattle off some of their hits. I mean, the first video I remember seeing for a song was Don't Tell Me You Love Me. Mm-hmm. And that was in the early days of MTV. And I think what Night Ranger benefited from was the fact that MTV was desperate to have anybody with a music video. And then here you have, uh, you know, some guys that are, are at least not hideous. You know, they're they're more or less camera ready. They're young. They're talented musicians. Brad Gillis had just come from playing with Ozzy. Right. So there was there was a little bit of, of recognition. So he brought a little bit of a fan base with him to this to this project known as, as Night Ranger, where I think you know from from day one, uh, I remember you know seeing this band, liking this band, and uh, yeah, they had a nice string of uh, of of success throughout the '80s, especially. I mean, even even going into the uh, later '80s when they did the music on the soundtrack for The Secret of My Success mm-hmm. with uh, Michael J. Fox, sure. I thought that was a good song too. That that was the title the title track to the movie and uh, i i thought night ranger and then you know jack blades ends up going on to quite a successful uh stint with with uh damn yankees right and became known as one of the better more popular songwriters in in uh, los angeles well at, he at and time. his um his fellow damn yankee uh, musician tommy shaw kind of formed this little writing partnership so it's blade shaw and they appeared in a bunch of like Aerosmith songs. So they kind of, as they they change out of what had been, you know, kind of their performing careers in the in the 80s, they kind of morphed over to more or less the other side, you know, the in the, the writing, the production part of things in the 90s and beyond, and became pretty successful. And Night Ranger is still one of those bands that gets out there and plays. You know, they if, if you talk, if you go on one of the the rock cruises it's a good chance you're going to see Night Ranger. You, you're, they're they're going to be coming up, actually. Uh, Brett Michaels from Poisons putting a, a, a whole little package together this summer where it's Brett's solo band. Uh, Night Ranger's going to play. Um, they have one of the former lead singers of Journey that's going to go out there with them. And so it's, you know, it's still, they're still a relevant band. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was my number nine um, heavy metal band of uh, all time. And that is the band Night Ranger. My number eight band of all time also got an early jump on MTV. And I mentioned them earlier in this episode when I said that they were really one of the big three coming out of Los Angeles when they were uh, when they got their first album in 1984, which was uh, Out of the Cellar. Now, this is off of the next album, which is Invasion of Your Privacy. Of course, I'm talking about the band Rat, and Rat had the benefit of MTV, I think, uh, more so than a lot of heavy metal bands at their time, where they had kind of a, a nifty idea when they did the, the song Round and Round. That kind of put them on the map. Sure. Uh, it was a catchy video. It involved a very famous person named Milton Berle, mm-hmm. because his... Was it his nephew? His nephew. Was the manager of the band. Yeah, Milton Berle. I mean, um, oh, oh, I forget what he said. Marshall Berle. 
So he got the idea of, of bringing Milton Berle into this music video, and it worked. And the first album uh, out of the cellar, I think, sold 4 million copies. So this was a highly anticipated follow-up, which was Invasion of Your Privacy. And for me, as much as I did like the first one out of the cellar, and I did own that cassette as well, uh, Invasion of Your Privacy, to me, is the quintessential rap rat al- album if you're looking at uh, the elements of just the grandiose, over-the-top. It seems uh, when they would uh, open up their songs, like, like the track Lay It Down, I can just see them opening up a concert with that and the crowd just going insane. Just the way that they... Rat had this ability to kind of build this crescendo before Stephen Piercy would even sing his first note. And that was, uh, you know, the two guitarists, Robin Crosby and Warren D. Martini. And D. Warren D. Martini. Yeah. And I mean, two of the best. Oh, uh, especially it, Warren. Yeah. And those guys were so good. They really had this ability to get, it could whip the crowd into a frenzy before Stephen Pierce even sings the first note. And that's one of the things that I, I thought was so cool about this album and this particular song, You're in Love. Uh, it came out when I was about maybe 15 years old. And one of my best friends at the time was a guy Sean knows very well named Steve Kratz. And uh, Kratzy and I would sit at lunchtime up in the uh, outside of the cafeteria and we would smuggle in this cassette tape because of the school we went to. We would get in trouble if they found us listening to it inside the school. They would maybe confiscate it from us. Uh, so we would sit there and huddle up and share headphones <laughs> and we would listen to this, you know, listen to this album over and over and over again. And to me, it just brings back brings back a lot of good memories with hanging out with him because he was as big a Rat fan as what I was at the time. Well, you know, there, there's no doubt Rat's going to be on my list. And the the album that Scott's talking about, Invasion of Your Privacy, may be the best album of this whole genre that we're talking about tonight. It's it's a it's another Bow Hill production. Rat uses you know pretty much only Bow Hill throughout the '80s. They didn't really want Bo Hill. They, Bill Hill was kind of forced on them by the uh, by Atlantic Records, but they could have disliked him all they wanted. He produced some really good albums, and uh, this this to me is where Rat was just firing on all cylinders. You know, David Lee Roth actually brought up the name Rat many many years ago when he uh, tried his stint as replacing Howard Stern on on radio. I I think the comment that he had made was that. You can obviously tell from bands back then, the ones that put the thousands and thousands of hours into that album, you know, where they're playing night after night, where they're practicing, where they're writing material. And, you know, he said, you get to a point where you're just so unbelievably tight and connected. And to me, that rat, when you listen to their first three albums, um, whether it's Out of the Cellar, uh, even the Dancing Undercover. Sure. Reach for the sky and reach for the sky. Reach for the sky. I I applaud them for trying to go in a different direction. One of my favorite Rat songs of all time is "Way Cool Junior." Now the rest of the album uh, wasn't. I did own the album. Come on, city to city. I want a woman, and I did. I I, I want a woman. Don't I bite like, the hand that feeds I, you. I like I like the album. "Way Cool Junior" to me was so different than anything else that they had it done. It was. It was. But as far as you know, hitting the formula. Invasion of Your Privacy, to me, is one of the best heavy metal albums by anybody in the sure. 80s. 
uh, in my opinion. Well, and you talked about, you know, the, the comment that David Lee Ross said about uh, being a tight band. So, you know, I've mentioned Bo Hill a few times, the producer. Bo Hill was notorious for being one of those producers that want to control the studio. And what he was big into was he didn't want to waste time. He did not want to run up costs. He was, he, for whatever reason, he was always very aware of that. And he said that he used to have issues with rats sometimes because they did not understand that he was actually saving them money. And they thought that he was keeping the money. Right. If you, but so he said he would do a lot of the work in pre-production outside of the studio where they practiced. They were kind of, they had, the songs were pretty much ready to go. We're just going to come to the studio and, and, you know, basically finalize them. And he was known for when he worked with other artists because time was so precious to him, he would bring in these hired guns. You know, he would bring in, he had this guitar player named Mike Slamer. Well, Mike Slamer will appear on a lot of other artists' albums. If you, if there was like this tough solo to be performed, he would say, uh, an example would be like with the band Warrant. Like on the first album, Mike Slamer is playing all the solos. The guys eventually learned to play them on the road, and Slamer actually taught them to him. But in the studio, they didn't have time for that. So okay. he'd bring in Slamer. He had like Anton Fig, David Letterman's drummer, was also a studio session drummer that Bo Hill would use. But they said there were basically two bands that Bo Hill recorded that he never brought in studio musicians for. One was Winger, because basically the Winger band, they were his studio musicians for a lot of things. Right. And the other band was Rat. Okay. And they said, you did, you know, he, these guys were players. Right. And he did not mess with any, any of the guys in, in Rat. Okay. Yeah. So that was my number eight. Uh, heavy metal band of all time my number seven is not going to be a surprise to people that uh, listen to our particular podcast talked about the the importance of their relevance to mtv but when this video came out i think you and i may have seen it for the first time together yeah and this was like oh man this is good this is good stuff this yeah. is Def Leppard, of course, from the album Pyromania. And this is the song Photograph. Still a great song. It is. It's a well-written song. It was produced by Mutt Lang. Mm -hmm. And this is really, I mean, <clears throat> they, had a, they had two albums before this. They had On, On Through, Through the, the Night. Night and High and Dry. And High and Dry. And High and Dry had a, had a relatively minor hit, uh, Hanging on the Heartache. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so people heard of Def Leppard when this when this came out, um, but I don't think people were expecting quite this. You know, Joe Elliott kind of styled himself in an MTV type fashion, wore the big wore the big Union Jack shirt, made the Union Jack very popular, and. But not only that, you also had uh, Phil Collin on guitar, who really doesn't get a lot of deserved credit, I think, for just how solid and, and good he's been over the years with, with a lot of his work. Well, you know, and I think that's, you, you brought up Phil, and I think part of the reason why Pyromania becomes different from High and Dry is because uh, Phil came in and replaced the original lead guitarist, Pete Willis. Well, you know, I, back then, Steve Clark, who stayed in the band, I think Steve did more of the, the lead, 
And Pete was a little more rhythm. Um, and, but then when Phil came in the band, Steve kind of stepped aside because Phil was just such a slick, accomplished professional player. And it kind of allowed them to go into, you know, I'm going to bring the name up again, that Eddie Van Halen realm, because Phil had those types of skills. Right. So he was flashy. And But Steve Clark was known as, as a really good musician. Yeah. And he voluntarily kind of stepped aside because he saw how good Phil was. Sure. And um, played off each other very well. You know, the, the, what they used to say is, you know, Phil was very technical and he was very, as I said, very polished, very skilled. And Steve was very, uh, he had, had a lot of emotion and a lot of feel to his playing. Uh, you know, he brought a lot of heart to it. And the two kind of played really well. Yeah. And you had mentioned, um, you know, the previous guitarist, Pete. And I always thought that was because they I thought that was very cool about Def Leppard back when it happened and just kind of show people are human and sometimes celebrities can do cool things. And I thought it was great that even though you're talking about a guy that got kicked, he was axed from the band. He, he was. was. He was kicked out. Yeah, because he had uh, drinking problems. Because even though uh, even though he admittedly just said, I deserve to be kicked out of the band, he got money off of this album. Sure, he, he was a writer. I yeah. mean, he, he kept his writing credits. But they you know they basically paid him as as almost as if he were a full member of the band when this when this came out. So this was uh, Pyromania. Uh, hysteria is is maybe the the third or fourth best selling uh, album uh, of the decade at the time when it came out. Um, was a huge huge album for for Def Leppard. My favorite was Pyromania, um, but Hysteria certainly was was a great great album. A little bit of a different sound. I think they became more and more polished as they went along. I like this raw sound that Def Leppard had with, with this particular album, but there was enough from the other, you know, from the other albums that easily put them on this list for me. And people might not think about it today because the sound that most of these bands that we kind of are, are talking about, they, they had this sound, you know, kind of, you know, kind of along the pyromania line. Uh, but prior to that, this, nothing like this was heard. So when you go back to the previous album that, you know, Scott talked about high and dry, there's, you know, Mutt Lang is, is still the producer with that. And Mutt had just come off producing ACDC's Back in Black. And so that album has a little more of that feel to it. It's, it's a little more that that kind of bare bones, high energy rock. And then you move into this direction, which is kind of what we're talking about tonight. You know, something that later on gets labeled as, as this hair mu uh, music, but Early on, I would have said that Def Leppard was closer to Judas Priest than, you know, a, a glam band that, I don't know, who would have been like, like a Slade over in mm -hmm. Europe. I mean, I know Def Leppard really likes Slade, but they were, they still were part of that new wave of British heavy metal music that was coming in. Well, we're, because we're in the United States and we do have listeners that are not in the United States, uh, just from what I'm told and what I've read is that. Slade was so big everywhere else in the world other than the U.S. And so you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that band's name because they never really got their, you know, their due credit in the States. Even though Quiet Riot has, has a huge hit based on a Slade song, Come On, Feel the Noise. And then Slade ended up coming out later. They did have that, their hit, um, Run, Run Away. Yeah. 
which was which was very popular. But at that point, and they always said about Slade being a hard rock band, that certainly wasn't a hard rock song. I mean, I didn't know Slade from anybody when that until that song came out. Right. So yeah, no, that's a good choice. I I, I like that. You know, Def Leppard isn't on my list. Um, I thought about it. I mean, they were on my almost list. I think for me, they, I, uh, I don't know why. And honestly, I, I, I debated putting something off Hysteria on there. I almost put Animal down. That that was on my just on my last minute cut list. But uh, still, I mean, you can't go wrong with Def Leppard. Okay. So that was my number seven group. My number six, uh, I don't think is going to be a surprise to too many people, especially when we talk about how much we. Uh, love bands that come from nearby and and this band certainly is nearby from philadelphia they actually started in good old clifton heights pennsylvania in delaware county and uh, upstairs above a garage and uh, but most of the band members hail from the springfield area i am of course talking about the band cinderella and this is off of their night songs album their debut album which actually made it all the way to number two on the uh, Billboard album charts, one album kind of stood in the way at the time, and that was an album people may remember by the name of Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. But Cinderella, for about a three-year period, they were one of the best acts in the 80s. And, and Tom Keeper was known as not only being a good performer, but a good songwriter as well. And you started to see that with as the band sort of evolved with their sound in the late 80s into the early 90s. And, um, yeah, you had Long Cold Winter, which was the follow-up to Night Songs. Right. And then after that, Heartbreak Station. When Heartbreak Station came out, I don't say that I was necessarily a fan. I have since gone back and listened to Heartbreak Station, and and I really like the album now. It's something that had to grow on me, um, and occasionally they'll... They'll play some of the uh, some of the songs on, like "Shelter Me," that's on the Heartbreak Station album, and they play that on Hair Nation on uh, Sirius XM. And uh, I think it's a great song. And Tom Kiefer kind of took the band in, in a uh, non-heavy metal direction, a little bit more of a blues, sure, because he was he was always a blues fan. But for uh, for heavy metal, Night Songs is about as good as it gets. Yeah, it's it's one of the uh, I think albums that if you are going to compile a list of of hard rock heavy metal albums of the 1980s, I think you have to have Night Songs on there. And it's kind of interesting, you know, having a band like Cinderella. You know, obviously it's close by to us. So you know, from when you know when I saw them, you know, we've talked about before when I saw Cinderella in concert with Bon Jovi back in '87 when it was the biggest ticket around. And I was a bigger Cinderella fan than a Bon Jovi fan going into the concert. I really liked Bon Jovi, but mm-hmm. I, I came out of that a bigger Bon Jovi fan because they were so good. But what made me want to get a ticket from day one was I, I, I was a huge Cinderella fan. They, uh, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're talking about the Sunset Strip. But there was a scene that was happening here on the East Coast. There was. And it kind of centered in that Philadelphia, New Jersey, little bit into Maryland, kind of a, a little triangle that was going on at the time. And there was a circuit. And, and you would have some of these bands, as they were coming up, that would even come into Lancaster and play and play the local clubs here as well. Yeah, and there, there's definite connections between uh, Cinderella getting that first album deal 
with uh, with the attention that was brought on by John Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was kind of a brotherhood uh, in this area in the, in the Northeast, and it was kind of cool to see these these Eastern acts become nationally known. Um, you know, for that for that time period. So, yeah, it was it was definitely cool. That was my number six uh, heavy metal band of all time. My number five is going to have another local flavor to it. And this is somebody that I've seen in concert. I know Sean's seen quite a few times in concert. And I was so glad to see them get a hit and go national because they were so popular in this area, in the Lancaster, kind of the southern Pennsylvania, northern Maryland area. They're, they're hail from Hagerstown, Maryland, big in Baltimore. I'm talking about the band Kicks. And this is the song Cold Blood off of their Blow My Fuse album that came out in 1988. To me, this is maybe the best pop heavy metal song ever made. I love this song. It's just so well done. And from Steve Whiteman's uh, lyrics, or you know, singing, and the way that he's able to work his voice into almost like the flow of the music. Good guitars, good drums. This is like the perfect three and a half minute song. Came out in 1988, or early 89. Um, but I was glad to see Kicks make it because they were kind of on the fringe there for a while. You kind of turned me on to them way back before this. I yep. mean, we're talking two albums back. Sure. With a band, with an album called Cool Kids. And that wasn't even their first album. That was their right. second album. And so I, the, the the song that I remember that that we used to sing to was. Um, Loco emotion, because <laughs> it would go. Because loco emotion, go, go, go. Uh, you know that was had a that, saxophone on there. That was one of the first. That was one of the first uh, songs that I remember. And I remember thinking that they were, you know, the, the, of course the title track, Cool Kids. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I, you know, I, I like these guys. And then they they re- released an album called Midnight Dynamite, and. Um, it was okay, but then they, they came oh, out. Midnight Dynamite's great. You like that? Oh, oh, no. yeah. oh yeah. You you were definitely oh, more of a it. fan pre Blow My Fuse. Oh, haven't yes. Now, you know, I always talked about when when songs come out and Blow My Fuse came out my senior year. So just like Bon Jovi for you it's slippery when wet. For me it's New Jersey. And uh, so when Kicks came out, Blow My Fuse, that's the one I tend to, to gravitate towards. So Kicks um, was uh, Steve Whiteman, lead vocals, very very charismatic lead singer. He, uh, we, they, two just fabulous guitar players, uh, Brian Forsyth, and a guy named Ronnie Yonkins, and they almost had a, a bit of a like a Rolling Stones type of of interaction with each other, where with the way the guitars work, they're not necessarily you know guys that are playing the the you know the Eddie Van Halen the the Whammy Bar they 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 don't have a Floyd Rose on the mm-hmm. he, neither of them play, played with the Floyd Rose on their guitars they were playing Les Pauls they're playing like Telecasters they started out very much an ACDC inspired band their their first album is very very much of that genre right and even when you hear the guitars in this song that I just played it's there's there's it's straightforward I mean it's just basically it's notes and chords you know it's not right. like they're trying to do any type of special effects on the song they're jamming away and they were i think one of the things that makes it probably one of my favorite of all time is 
you could see them live and they would be they would sound even better than better, they did on the album. Better. Maybe the best live band I've ever seen. And I and Scott is right. I've seen them a lot. So this was a band that played the Central Pennsylvania circuit heavily. And they would come to Lancaster all the time. I remember being a kid in junior high school. And, you know, so, you know, we're talking about my buddy Greg and his older brother, Gary, would, you know, kind of was old enough to go out and see them play. Or, or you would hear these these older people that would go to these events where we weren't allowed to get in there. Right. And, and so they come back with stories of kicks. There was this local club that's, that's closing down now after all these years called The Village. Mm-hmm. And The Village would always get kicks in. And in fact, there is a, a band that's not on my list, but, uh, you know, kind of a, a Philadelphia area a heavy metal band called Heaven's Edge that I remember going and see at, at The Village as well. So we would get, you know, signed bands to come and play. So I knew all about them. So, you know, we talked about Steve and the two guitar players. Uh, the drummer, Jimmy Chalfant, is also the, the backup singer. So what I always liked about Kicks was this distinct backing vocals that they had that really sound cool. And then also, all the songs were written by the bass player, Donnie Purnell. And Donnie Purnell was the leader of the band. In fact, interestingly, he's not in the band right now even though they tore pretty heavily right now because evidently Donnie was not a nice guy and he was a bit of a taskmaster, at least from their version of it, that it was his way or the highway and they didn't want to deal with him anymore, so he was not asked to be part of the reunion. Okay. Um, But just a phenomenal band. And and Donnie, even though they had issues with him, they all will say he was a great songwriter. And as you said, he wrote tight, perfect little poppy songs. Yeah, I mean, this this was stuff that... And you wondered why... Why they didn't hit it bigger earlier, and they just didn't never. It, it's funny because they made music videos, sure, and you can actually go back and see some of them. I was watching MTV Classic just a couple of weeks ago, and they played uh, a Kicks. It wasn't. It wasn't Body. To- which one was it? So they did. They did Cool Kids. Yes, it was the Cool Kids yeah. one. And I remember watching it. Now, granted, there's not a whole lot of money invested in the video, and maybe that's why one of the reasons why it didn't get played on MTV. But you know, they they were a band that were just they were so close, and they worked with a lot of the same people for bands that ended up going huge and, and going global. And it just took them such a long time. It took them. I mean, they they. Well, they're, they in the, they're in their 30s. They grinded they, for at least 10 had, years yeah. before they even got any no, national notoriety. So I tell you an interesting story behind the song Cold Blood that you you played. And I was I was in Kansas. I'm going to school out there. We One of the guys in my dorm had uh, an uncle that had a farm in Nebraska. So all of us decided we were going to go on a hunting trip to this uncle's farm. We were going to go small game hunting. So we, we, we go out there, we go hunting during the day. So at night, we decided we're just going to drive around because it's in the middle of nowhere. We, okay. we stumble upon a house party okay. that's going on in Nebraska. I don't know why. We thought they would be friendly, and we stopped it. And sure enough, these people were friendly, and they let these strangers come in and hang out with them. Okay. This was a full-blown, like, out-of-the-movies house party. Okay. And I remember standing there in the living room talking to people and as was usually the case, Headbangers Ball was on and the video for 
Cold Blood came on, and I just remember like telling everybody in the room, "You got to see this video. This band's from back in my hometown, and it's like this is these are local guys." Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then we ended up. I ended up seeing them in concert even a couple of years after Blow My Fuse came out, and um, you know those guys, those guys were so good. They're such pros. You know, there's something to be said about about a band that just knows each other inside and out. And they would do it, you know, they had the choreographed moves where they would hit the floor at the mm-hmm. same time, which they do in this video. Sure. Uh, but they put on they put on such a fun show. I think we saw them at, at the York Fair. Yeah. As when, Every as year when they we, played the York Fair. And, uh, you know, they never disappointed. It, it's a band that is still big in this area and into Baltimore. So every year, as many of you probably know, there's a festival that takes place uh, called the N3 Festival. Uh, in Maryland, Meriwether Post uh, Pavilion, and they get major acts. In fact, most of the acts that we've talked about tonight have appeared at some point. Well, even now, Kicks, which never headlined ever, went in their heyday. They headline one of the nights. Okay. So you can have the the biggest names from our list, and there's still going to be one night where Kicks headlines. And if you go see them, or even watch it on YouTube. They, you know, they always say, we can't believe we are headlining. <laughs> it's like, we always feel ashamed that That's funny. that they're that popular, but they are, and it's uh, certainly worthy of being on the list, so I'm glad you put them on. Okay. Uh, so that was my number five band, that was Kicks. Um, now we're kind of getting into heavy metal royalty, uh, and I think whether or not they're in your top five, four or five or ten, uh, I don't think anybody can argue that the four, my last four are very, very deserving. I don't think anybody's going to knock me for having them in my top four. So I'm going to start with my number four band of all time. And this may surprise people for as far down on the list that they are. And it was really tough to pick a song because, you know, this is, this is a band that over the years, you know, it's like what people want to hear gets narrowed down and you always hear like the same one or two songs over and over and over and over again. When this, they actually have such a good catalog of songs to choose from. I had a hard decision to make. So I thought, well, what would be one of my, my most uh, favorite songs from this band? So I figured I'd probably go off of the movie Spaceballs <laughs> when the flying Winnebago is out there in outer space. And I just remember hearing that, and I just went nuts in the movie theater when I saw the movie. I'm talking about Bon Jovi, and this is Raise Your Hands Off the Slippery One Wet album. Uh, John Candy, as a half-man, half-dog, just makes this song so much better. And uh, But this is a great, great song from Bon Jovi. So, uh, I told Scott before we went on the air, because I knew we were going to have some overlap, I went down and I literally picked two songs for every band. This was one of the songs I picked for Bon Jovi. <laughs> you know, the, the other song that I was going to do, and I almost did it, was off of his debut album. And it's a song that was not Runaway, but it was the she other don't know song. Me? She Don't Know Me? Yeah. And I went back and played that song again just yesterday and watched the music video. The music video is terrible. The song is... John walking around with his shirt off? Yes. And, yeah. The song is phenomenal oh, he didn't write it i mean and they, they don't perform it and i think that's the reasons because you know john had did not have a hand in the song right but this is the first time that we actually get to see what is to become the bon jovi band 
which is you know John and Richie Sambora, right? And then it's uh, Tico Torres. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the David Bryan mm-hmm. and Alec, Alec John Such uh, plays. I mean, he has since passed away, right? And he got replaced back in the '90s. But uh, this was the the famous band that was during that run from Slippery Run Wet in New Jersey, especially. Yeah, and so it, it's. I said about my criteria, um, and these were really the, the the top four that I have. Is why I had to put that criteria in there as far as um, you know multiple albums. Uh, you know, Bon Jovi dominated the '80s in, in terms of music, especially Slippery When Wet in New Jersey. Even his debut album did you know did so well. His second album was disappointing, but it still sold well. I mean, people, the fans were still there. I think that's why Slippery When Wet did so well is because people were anticipating it. And then to have the music video come out and and um, You Give Love a Bad Name did so well yeah, on that MTV. Yeah, I think that was number one. That was a number yeah. one song, yeah. I think that, um, so the fact that there was there was a core group that was ready to buy that album. I mean, I was one of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I came into that as a Bon Jovi fan. I remember when they were touring at 7,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. They opened for Rat. You know, they, and I remember my, my friend Carrie Garber went to the concert because we didn't have YouTube back then. I couldn't go on and watch a recording from somebody's phone. I had to listen to somebody describe the concert to me. Okay. And I remember he went into great detail saying how good Bon Jovi was. And so that kind of had me primed for when they came around the next time that I was going to go see them. I listened to uh, an interview that, where John was interviewed and he talked about that time period. So they come out of 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit and they're getting ready to make slippery when wet. And he was determined to take the next step as a band. He was not going to be satisfied with another 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit, even though they would have made a good living. I mean, that album went gold. It sold more than 500,000 copies, but he wanted, he didn't want to be the support band for the main act. He wanted to be the main act, mm-hmm. and he was. They were so determined going into making Slippery When Wet to make a great product. Um, you kind of see that that earnestness and that uh, that drive into an album like this. You know, New Jersey is great because it showed that they could stay on top. But there's something from going from you know a supporting act level to not only a mainstream, but now you're now you're doing theaters. Now you're doing arenas, and sometimes even stadiums. And I think that was the step that he said. I look, he looked around and he said, "That's what I want to do. That's what I want the band to be." And then that's when they brought in Desmond Child to help with some of the songwriting. Uh, you know, he famously, most famously, I think, is for, uh, "Living on a Prayer" mm-hmm. is one that he co-wrote with them. And their their songwriting just goes to another level with "Slippery When Wet." And also, I, I think. Don't discredit Richie Sambora's involvement in the musical arrangements because oh, Rich, he had a lot to do with R- it. Richie's my favorite member of the band. I mean, R- Richie, when when it came to actually mixing and producing the album, I was surprised to read that he did his, you know, that he had a, a heavy hand in a lot of the musical part of the, like, um, you know, how the bass interacts with the lead guitar, how the bass interacts with the drums. Uh, you know, he had a lot to do with that. And it, it's kind of a shame that, I mean, he's retired now. He decided to walk away from music, um, but uh, he didn't really. I don't. I don't know if he really got his just due. It was. It was. You know, John was the forefront member. You know, he was the guy up front with the band, 
And well, some, Jones the only one that's ever been signed to a deal. True, and he hired these guys. Sure, I mean they they became a band, right? And I heard John talk about how important it was for them to get Tico Torres. And you know, you talk about uh, Richie being a little underappreciated. I think Tico is incredibly underappreciated. And John said in the early days, the first two albums when they were touring, that they weren't very good, but they had a great drummer. And they said, and he said because Tico just kept perfect time and it taught all of them to learn to play in perfect timing right and the and uh because john was when they first organized together david bryan was like one of his best friends from school um you know alec john such he was a professional bassist i think tico brought him into the project okay and and richie had what had previously worked as a professional musician as well so the those three the the i guess the the heartbeat of the band they had they had the most experience going into this project, and uh, so David and John they were kind of friends, and they were a little bit younger than these other guys. Mm-hmm. That, and I think um, they were able there at the right time to kind of help them get better as a group as they went on. Right. Yep. Yep. Bon Jovi certainly worthy of being a little bit higher. Actually. <laughs> so that was my number four, my number three band, heavy metal band of all time. And the song that I decided to choose dates back to a conversation that I had with my oldest son, Gavin, where uh, for, for a period of time, my son, when he was about maybe 10 or 11, he came to me one day and he goes, you know, Dad, if I don't make it as a major league baseball player, I think I'll be a pop star. <laughs> uh, so this conversation kind of uh, came out of that where Gavin asked me, if you had, if you could choose your own walk-up music, what would your walk-up song be? And I sat there and I thought, I'm like, eh, you know, as much as I like to think about it, I always come back. I always come back to one song. Like, what would I get fired up to go to the plate, Game Seven of the World Series, do or die, win the game? I think this is what I would want to walk up to. I think this would get the crowd pretty pumped up. And this is, uh, of course, Motley Crue off of the Dr. Feelgood album, uh, released in, in 1989, uh, stayed on the charts for a couple of years, which is for a heavy metal album to have this much longevity on the Billboard charts. I think it stayed on the charts for over 120 weeks uh, that it was that it was in the top 40. That is, this was this was a big album, and and this is Kickstart My Heart. Yep, and this just goes to show that. You know, Motley Crue as a band struggled for a number of years with substance abuse, and they admittedly talk about it. I'm not, you know, really Motley sl- Crue. They, they believe it or not, Sean. I'm Motley shocked Crue to hear that. Huh? Had substance abuse problems. Wow. Uh, judging by the song here, written by <laughs> Nikki Six, yeah, uh, where he had to be brought back to life with an adrenaline shot. Um, of course, you know, I, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the film The Dirt by yes. now. Yep. And, and, you know, it's not 100% accurate, uh, you know, but, you know, I think it gives a pretty good flavor of what was going on. You know, Motley Crue, definitely, they were the poster boys for excess, and that's what the Sunset Strip was all about. I mean, when we talk Sunset Strip, you got to, 
it, it's you know the visual of Motley Crow and you know it, the indulgence that you see in the dirt. You know, kind of what you think about. Yeah, and I, I guess really what the point I wanted to make was they in the in the '80s they had successful albums and they were a big band and they were very popular on MTV. But when you look at an album, Doctor Feelgood was probably the first album that they ever did together where everybody was completely sober. And it just goes to show man, when these guys clean themselves up, they were awesome. And Dr. Feelgood is one of those, is one of those like top decade albums because of, of how good it is. And, um, you know, Mick Mars was always a, a, a great guitarist. Mm -hmm. Um, Tommy, Tommy Lee doesn't get his just justification as a drummer. Cause he's a really good rock and roll drummer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and then you had Vince Neil, uh, singing and Nikki six, you know was a very adequate bass player not because that wasn't his real instrument you know he was he was not known you know when he, going into the band he agreed to play bass kind of like duff did with uh, guns and roses um but his his trait was the songwriting he was the creative force behind motley Crue, and dr feelgood was basically his vision of what he wanted the band to do now at this point the the band wasn't getting along particularly well the producer for this album was a was a guy by the name of Bob Rock, who his uh, forte going into this was sound engineering, and he did a lot of sound engineering. I believe he was a part of Slippery When Wet. He was out in out in Canada in Vancouver. So uh, producing the Doctor Feelgood album was one of his first real producing jobs that he had to do. He came up with the idea, believe it or not, and this just goes to show how good. Uh, Bob was in producing and how good the band was. Everybody came in and did all their parts separately. They were never in the studio at the same time, which I, when you hear the album, you're like, how is that possible? They didn't actually play on the play together until they started to get ready for the tour, which I think is amazing. And to show how good they were by the time they started touring, you could hear this song played live and you couldn't tell the difference. Which I which I thought was was a couple interesting notes from this album, and in in many ways, I mean, Motley Crue is po more popular today than they what they were kind of back in the day that that we're talking about. You know, they just came off of this past summer, the which would have been two thousand twenty two, depending. I mean, maybe you're listening to this podcast five years mm -hmm. in the future, but you know, it was uh, you know it was Motley Crue, it was uh, Def Leppard, it was you know it was Poison, Joan Jett. They sold out stadiums mm -hmm. across the United States. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely, you know how we, we talk about how coming out of one era to the next, I think in terms of heavy metal music, Motley Crue seems to have had the lasting power more so than a lot of other 80s bands. I think part of that is based on the personalities of the members of the band. And to their credit, from a marketing perspective, they decided they were going to market each individual. You know, you, you just rattled off the names. You know, you talk about Nick Mars, uh, Nikki Six, uh, Tommy Lee, and of course, Vince Neil. Most people that are even remotely familiar with Motley Crue can rattle off their names. You can't always do that with every band. Sure. And as a result, it is, I think they're, in, well, I should say backtrack a little bit. I think the intention from what I heard was a little bit how the Beatles kind of marketed themselves mm -hmm. everybody had their favorite you know if, if you had a certain personality type you liked or a certain look you like you could go for that member and that's kind of what motley Crue did well i think you bring up a really good point because it, it kind of 
sheds, you know, brings something to mind. Part of the reason why they've been around for such a long time is that they've tolerated each other. They're not best friends. It's a business arrangement. They don't get along with each other. Yeah. But think of the other bands that have been around for a long, long time that are the same, the Rolling Stones. I mean, uh, Mick Keith Jagger. They don't like each other. Exactly. They haven't liked each other for f- probably 45 years. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's groups out there that, and it almost seems like the, the fan base, they embrace that and say, well, I, you know, the fact that they don't care, they don't like each other, but they still get together and they still rock out. So, so let's, let's clue everybody in on how history actually was back in the eighties. Rat was a bigger band than Motley Crue. In the, in the mid, in the uh, mid eighties, Rat was bigger. Rat could not get along. They, they've always been regarded as perhaps the most dysfunctional band out there. And they just can't get their act together where they can get along with one another to go out and tour. Yeah. And remember, I talked about the big three coming out of Los Angeles at that particular time. You had Quiet Riot, basically a one-trick pony. Sure. They ran out of material. Then you had Rat and Motley Crue, who were the two biggest bands in LA. And also like best friends with each other. The, the, the members of the ba- two bands, that those were each other's best friends. And, uh, you know, Rat flames out because... You know, they, like you said, they, there's a lot of internal conflict and, and it left Motley Crue. They were the last kind of the last of the three standing. And yet they're, and they're the ones that everybody kind of remembers because they, they were able to push through it and, and continue to have that career. They remember them now. But I tell you what, in 1995, when, you know, we're coming out of grunge and if you are even connected to the Sunset Strip, you're embarrassed. Right. Motley Crue is not popular. I remember them coming out to Hershey and playing at the 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 old hockey arena, and it, the only reason it was noteworthy was because there were some arrests that took place. <laughs> okay, and I, and it was almost like it might have been staged just so they could get some press. Well, you also had said that there were certain bands that were always very popular where we grew up. Yeah, uh, music at that time was kind of territorial. Uh, like the like Philly was known for being popular with van halen mm-hmm. uh you know i think philly was also known for being popular with david bowie yep so there were there were certain bands that did like elton john always did well in philadelphia billy joel always did well in philadelphia but then you know they might not necessarily been that way across the country and um motley crew in the harrisburg hershey area always gigantic yeah yeah so yeah we still have even to this day there's still a core group of the 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 hard rock heavy metal fans that are very loyal to their artists. You know, I, I saw Guns N' Roses, what, two summers ago, and it, it was hard to find a spot. Yeah. You know, it, it there was a loyal fan base that was coming out. In fact, I was, I was tailgating and, you know, talking to, now that we're older and you tailgate and you talk to people that are now seeing shows with their kids who are in college and everyone's hanging out. And then the, so the, the family next to me, they're talking about how they – have taken their kids to see all these shows and they're you know they're they're rattling off these clubs that they're going to and these are not you know these are like some of the like the band in particular they talked about was la guns and la guns you know was playing this small local club and yet they were loyal and they were still going out to see them yeah so that was my number three band motley crew uh, favorite heavy metal band of all time number two number two band of all time uh, people around the world and across America will probably think of these guys as an LA band because they ended up going out to Los Angeles. 
but to us they'll always be the local the local guys three of them in particular coming from uh, the you know the Harrisburg Mechanicsburg area of course I'm talking about the band Poison and so the song that I decided to choose for everybody to listen to I, I to me this is still my favorite album uh, that that Poison did and it's the debut album and it's look what the cat dragged in so I decided to choose the song look what the cat dragged in mm-hmm. this is a song that's kind of developed a whole second life recently through the uh, aid of Sirius XM I think this is uh, one of Poison's best songs wasn't necessarily one that was going to be played on the airwaves you know on the radio Every Rose Has Its Thorn is the one that gets played over and over and over and over again when it started out it was a great song and I just could probably hear anything other than that uh, these days because it got played so much. I think this is Poison at its best. This is when the bands get along really well with each other. You got C.C. DeVille, Bobby Dahl, Ricky Rocket on drums, Brett Michaels, lead singer. And these guys, the, the, the running joke in our area is that Steve Whiteman from Kicks always accused Brett Michaels of stealing his act. Oh, because he did. That he... They even stole the name Poison <laughs> from Kicks. Kicks on their original album has a song called Poison. Poison, uh, they used to open for Kicks right. locally, and they were known as Paris. Okay, right. They were Paris, yeah. Yeah, and then basically right before, around the time they moved out to Los Angeles, they changed their name to Poison. You know, it's everybody steals from everybody. If, if you go back and look at old Dave, David Lee Roth, I mean, he steals from Jim Dandy um, from, uh, what, what was it, Black Oak, Arkansas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if, I mean, it's incredible. I didn't know who Jim Dandy was until, you know, you know a few years ago. I saw some old videos. I'm like, man, Dave, like, totally ripped his act off. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of what you do. But here, the thing is, with, with Kicks, while they were just an incredible, incredibly tight band and just great musically and steve whiteman is a, is a is an excellent lead singer you know what poison brought was a lot of charisma and, absolutely and they you know brett michaels let's face it he, he's he's a good looking guy and if you the the showmanship and the the ability to to work a crowd was always there in fact i heard uh, i talked about uh brian forsyth of kicks and he i heard in an interview where he said that when Poison would open for them. They say they would be backstage. Well, I said when Paris would open for them, mm-hmm. they, they were backstage. He said they basically were a cover band. And they they listened to them and they go, well, they don't really sound that good. But then they, they would hear the crowd and the, and the crowd was going crazy. Yeah. And so they said they'd peek around the curtain and they're like, you know, these guys just had like a, a stage presence. But it's like anything else. You're not good at sports until you kind of work the muscle. Right. right? So... What they were is not who they are today, because I talked about how they were out on tour with Motley Crue and with Def Leppard and Joan Jett. By a lot of reports, they were the best band out there. They are still tight. In fact, to this day, they still open every show with Look What the Cat Dragged In. Yeah, and it's one of my... I think the the very first time I ever saw Poison... Uh, you know they had the very they had that glam look they had the makeup on mm-hmm. um, but the first time we ever watched them was on MTV and it was talk dirty to me and it was debuted 
uh, I just remember them making such a big deal about it because remember they had that call in. Sure. You could call in and vote for your top, your favorite videos of the day. And uh, Talk Dirty to Me won for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. It was the top, top requested video, uh, you know, of the day from, from everybody. And it, it was, uh, you know, they, they hit the ground running. And I know there's, they always tell stories about, you know, when bands, before they get that record deal and before they get out there and how poor they are. And, you know, they basically had to have um, the, the guys from Poison had their female friends bringing them food because they, they had nothing. Uh, so, but when they hit it, I mean, they, they hit the ground running and they just went from look what the cat dragged in to open up and say, ah, to flesh and blood. They just, they had, they had three huge albums, boom, boom, boom. And, uh, you know, they will always go down as one of the bad, more popular heavy metal bands of all time. And I think the first concert that was not Boxcar Willie, uh, that Scott and I ever saw together was Poison back in 1990. Yes. At the Spectrum. Yes. Where Warren opened for them. Yep. It was during the Flesh and Blood tour. And Cherry Pie for Warren. Sure. And they were so good it was a great concert it really was a great concert you know people used to bust on their musical ability well when you play as many shows as they played because as popular as what they they were they would play hundreds of shows a year you do that from when they came out in 1986 by the time we're seeing them in 1990 they're solid musicians and i will credit brett michaels and i think sometimes especially the heavy metal bands of our era, the trap that you fall into is hit the high note. If you can hit the scream, high note, scream, yeah, scream sure. the high note. I mean, poor John Bon Jovi will never be able to sing his songs again no. because he's done. I mean, that voice is shot. Yeah. In the, imagine if he tried to do, I'll be there for you, where he does that screaming line in it. It, it just, it can't happen. So, you know, credit Brett Michaels for, for staying in his lane and and not overdoing it in terms of his of his uh, vocal range. Well, by not having a great vocal range, it actually worked to his benefit because when you see him today, he sounds pretty much like he did back in 1988. Still sounds good. Yeah. He he had that issue um he almost died a number of years ago. A couple he had, times he had a he brain aneurysm. Yeah. Uh, I I listened to him about 2 years after he had the aneurysm. Uh he actually came back to uh, Reading, and he was on a radio station out of Reading called Y102, and they played a live clip of him singing, and he did not sound good. And uh, but I've also heard him now more recently, and he sounds like himself again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm glad that he was able to make that recovery. And uh, you know, Poison is one of those one of those concerts that you can still go out and see, and you're not going to be disappointed. Right, and that 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 concert is probably more famous for because after the concert scott and i were leaving and uh we were looking to buy a (laughs) t-shirt from one of the famous philadelphia street vendors and as we were ready to make a purchase this guy comes up and he goes no 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 you don't want to buy that one he goes you want to buy mine they're fresh from the bag well then he hustled us over to his caddy yes he did he opened the trunk his yellow cadillac yeah and open the trunk. I mean, he could have shoved both of us in there for all we knew. <laughs> but but we got two shirts fresh from the bag. That's right. Fresh from the bag. And it, it's funny that to this day, whenever we go out to Philly, whether it's a sporting event or, or anything, I am always looking for the guy selling t-shirts <laughs> on the sidewalk uh, or in the parking lot. Uh, I actually just got an Eagle sweatshirt that way uh, a couple of weeks ago. But 
Anyway. Best deals always on the street <laughs> outside. So that's my number two band of uh, heavy metal band of all time, and that is Poison. The song I played was uh, Look What the Cat Dragged In off of their debut album. My number one band, I, I don't, uh, don't, to me, they are the Titans. Um, they were the band that everybody in LA and the Sunset Strip looked up to. They were the first band to make it big. And I'm talking about Van Halen. And I got to be specific. I'm, I'm specifically talking about David Lee Roth, Van Halen. I think Sammy Hagar, as good as Van Halen was under Sammy, not heavy metal to me. I don't consider that heavy metal music. 5150 might be as close as you can get. But the, Eddie was moving away from, from that particular sound. But coming out of L.A. with their first you know, five albums, they were... They were the be- they were the best. They were, they were the band that everybody tried to emulate, from their frontman to their guitarist to their drummer to the, I mean they just they had every element possible. And the song that I decided to choose yeah that's what I'm waiting for. Which was, one was kind of the I think to me this was like the epitome of because and it's off the uh, 1984 album. Okay. So I think what they got criticized for was that Eddie started to move to the synthesizer sound, but the song that I'm about to play for you it still you could put on any any Van Halen album that ever came out and it's not gonna it's not gonna fall under expectations I'm talking about Panama which to me is really the last great David Lee Roth Van Halen hard rock song heavy metal song that they came out with Hot for Teacher comes pretty close but to me this this is this goes to show where they where they came from and how they could put something that was just as strong and powerful on the radio now that the masses are going to listen to. Well, it's the whole package, isn't it? It sure is. I mean, it's it, you have everything from... What most people will see is the greatest guitar player of, of, of the hard rock, heavy metal, if not just the greatest guitar player, period, mixed in with what may have been the most charismatic, best frontman of rock music. The, you know, Dave, in 1984, he had the look down. People will criticize Dave's voice. I disagree. Maybe Dave didn't have a huge vocal range. We talk about Brett Michaels. But Dave's voice was cool. It was unique. You could hear his voice, and you knew exactly who it was. And I think that defines the great artists of any generation, is they don't sound like anybody else other than themselves. You, all you have to do is hear three notes of David Lee Roth to know that it's David Lee Roth. Now, his voice today, no, of course, no, it, it, it did not hold up well. But, you know, he abused it for a lot over, over the years. And, you know, he's much older now, so he retired, I think, just this past year. Well, after Eddie passed away, right. I think he officially retired. But that, you know, Panama is just, you know, from from Michael Anthony's backup vocals. I mean, I, I think we don't give Mike credit for yeah. how important his, his high vocals are to any Van Halen song. And Alex... Unfortunately for Alex, he has a brother who's regarded as the greatest at his instrument ever. So it's always by comparison, oh, you know, Alex isn't that good. Alex is a really good drummer. Alex Van Halen's one of the best rock drummers of all time. 
I think. But people don't think that. No. They think he's Eddie's brother. Because he never played with anybody other than his brother. He's He never did any uh, side gigs. He never... Um, he never played with anyone else's no, nothing. music ever. The only time he ever did anything other than play drums is he played piano with Eddie. I think it was on the Twister soundtrack. Okay. That's the only time you'll hear him do any other instrument besides drums. or But he never ever played professionally with without his brother and i think that you know fortunately it ended up being his detriment but when you uh, let's go back and listen to van halen's uh drum tracks there's nobody uh, there's really there's few drummers that are as good as him and, and as uh tight and as solid as an alex van halen and you know the sound when when Alex plays, you can tell it's him, and we've said that a few times tonight. When somebody's distinct and you know who it, who they are, I think that says a lot. So, yeah, no, they were the kings of of not just the Sunset Strip, but of of the hard rock, heavy metal music, all the way from the seventies. You know, the late seventies, nineteen seventy eight, all the way through, especially through the Roth years. That was kind of the pattern that you would then see from a lot of the bands came on and they were almost they were doing impressions of Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Everybody needed a flashy guitar player. Everybody wanted the the pretty boy lead singer who's out there jumping around on stage. But nobody did better than Van Halen. And uh, think back to when they first got started. They signed one of the worst record deals in the beginning in music history. What, where you sell like 10 million copies and you owe money to the record they studio? Were, yeah, they were in debt after yeah. they sold 10 million copies of their debut album. Um, and somehow they were able to find their way out of it. I think a lot of it had to do with David doesn't get a lot of credit for being business savvy. Yeah, there was always that that story that they, um, in their contract, they had to, what color M&M was it that had to it be was, out? It was brown. The brown ones had to yeah. be removed. Yeah. And somebody asked David Lee Roth, was that true? And he goes, absolutely, it was true. And they're like, why would you, you know, he goes, it had nothing to do with ego. He said, everything to do, because we would, whenever we would draw up a contract to play at a place, we'd always stick that at the bottom of the contract. And if we, all I had to do, as soon as I walked into that dressing room, if I saw that all the brown M&Ms were removed, I knew they read the whole contract. Right. And he said it was just a very quick way for him to reference and just quickly realize if the whole contract was being followed. Sure, sure. Yep, nope, Mighty Van Halen, excellent choice. So that rounds out your top 10. That's my top 10, so I'll just go through it very quickly. Uh, Number 10 was the Scorpions. Number 9 was Night Ranger. Number 8 was Rat. Number 7, Def Leppard. Number 6, Cinderella. Number 5, Kicks. Number 4, Bon Jovi. Number 3, Motley Crue. Number 2, Poison. And number one, The Mighty Van Halen. So that was my list. Okay, so now it's going to be my list. Hello, friends. It's Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. And part one is in the books now with our Don't Call Them Hair Bands. Hopefully you enjoy the first part. That was my uh, top ten list of the my favorite heavy metal bands of all time. And yes, folks, it is cold and flu season. So if you probably suspected... And we got it through that one, <laughs> as you'll hear in part two as well. So hopefully everybody's feeling well out there and that you are staying healthy. We have uh, really enjoyed this uh, this journey that this show has taken us through. Um, 
getting to see so many people from so many different areas being a part of this podcast and, and listening. Hopefully you're enjoying it. We're having a lot of fun putting this, this show on. And I know in particular, Sean was really looking forward to doing this episode on the uh, the heavy metal bands. And there are a few people that I've ever met uh, that are probably as knowledgeable about the heavy metal scene than, than Sean. Particularly, uh, I can speak from experience that he has been a, been a big part of his life, particularly when we were growing up. And so when he's throwing all that information out there, a lot of it is coming from right off right off the uh, top of his head because he's been that involved and studied that much on on heavy metal music over the years so i know you'll be looking forward to his top list i'm not going to say how many because he will uh tip that off in uh, part two of our episode so i hope you enjoyed part one and we will talk to you next time right here on the gen x playback show thanks